Welcome to the Building Wealth Through Commercial Real Estate Podcast, where we will discuss with industry experts on how to create wealth and build passive income from apartment buildings, self-storage, mobile home parks, and much more. Here is your host, Jonathan Way. Welcome to the Building Wealth Through Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Way, and I'm the founder of Grayson Capital Group, my investment firm. If you're interested in passively investing with us, please visit graystonecapgroup.com and join our investor network. Okay, and now on to the show. Today's guest, Jacob Vanderslice, is the principal at Van West Partners, a Denver-based real estate investment firm focusing on the acquisition and management of self-storage centers and other opportunities for real estate throughout the United States. Van West has an established track record of $195 million in real estate assets. Jacob and his partner's success is driven by a commitment to deliver expertly executed adoptable strategy with institutional investment approach. Welcome to the show, Jacob. That's a very impressive background. Great to meet you. Thanks for having us on today, Jonathan. We appreciate it. Great, great. So take us a little back. How did you first start, I guess, in self-storage investments? Yeah, we uh, Leading up to about 2015, we mainly focused on residential. We did our first self-storage project in 15. It was a ground-up development. Um, did a couple of those in Denver. We still own those. And then we expanded into the Midwest in about 2016 with some uh, conversions and kind of value-add acquisitions and kept going from there. And uh, through today, we own uh, 35 properties, uh, mainly in the Midwest and Southeast, uh, about 18,000 units and um, buying some more next year. So it's been, a, it's, gonna, it's been a good business through COVID and um, we're seeing a lot of increased consumer demand and uh, capital interest in the asset class. But unfortunately, that level of interest is driving up values and down cap rates. So deal flow is challenging, but uh, we're still finding deals that make sense. That's wonderful. I love to hear that, that there's still some deal flow out there that, you know, you can still have opportunity in self-storage. Just like multifamily is a very uh, competitive world. A lot of people in multifamily move into self-storage space as well, as I see that trend coming over. Um, and so that's great. So in, I guess, uh, Jacob, tell us, how would you... I guess, look at the market, how would you, in your criteria, what are you looking for to, to, to buy a, an acquisition a deal? We're, we're fairly geographically agnostic. We, we've got deals in a lot of markets I and mean, we don't want to buy deals in markets with declining populations or bad demographics. Um, we're generally targeting deals for a single asset acquisition. We're targeting deals that are 40 or 50,000 net rentable square feet or larger. Um, we'll buy deals that are smaller than that if they're part of a portfolio with some geographic concentration, but generally the smaller stuff we're kind of just shying away from just because of the lack of scale. As it relates to storage, we're, we're mainly looking at supply ratios and the one, three and five mile trade radius, making sure the market's not oversaturated. Um, we're, an, we're analyzing new development in the pipeline, new permits that are being pulled to see how that's going to affect supply ratios in the next couple of years. Um, but yeah, just generally markets with good, good supply and demand fundamentals and, um, and good demographic fundamentals. Okay. Okay. Great. That sounds like, um, a very good criteria. Um, so look at good demographics, increasing population, keeping job growth areas where you see, um, it's not oversupplied. So that's in demand and area where you think you can also develop because there's opportunity. Like, uh, I love Charlotte, North Carolina and maybe the surroundings of it. And, um, yeah, we've got uh, we got four deals out there. We've got two deals that are north of Charlotte and uh, two that are west of Charlotte. And the ones north of Charlotte we've owned for a couple of years, but the ones to the west we bought in June, and they're all they're all doing great. That's a good market out there in North Carolina. Yeah, yeah it's wonderful, yeah. wonderful. That's, that's awesome. So, is there a certain number of units you look for, or just it could be over a certain square square footage? It's mainly square footage. Uh, as you get a 
in the more suburban markets, obviously the, the unit mix size, average unit size goes up, but it's mainly a square footage metric. We look at it initially. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. And then, and then, and then once you find a deal, do you, I guess you submit LOI first? Is that your first step? Is that how you do it? Yeah, we, uh, we generally submit a letter of intent and then we negotiate a contract. It typically takes about a week or two to get an executed contract. And then we deposit our risk money and go through our due diligence. And assuming we don't find anything that's uh, majorly problematic, we proceed with the closing. Uh, most of our contracts are about a 60-day close, typically 30 days in due diligence and 30 days thereafter. Mm-hmm. Um, so deal flow is challenging. So a lot of our deals come off market through broker relationships and direct-to-seller marketing. Um, it's rare that if a deal is widely marketed, we can compete because our return requirements are just not, um, not as low as some of the larger institutional capital sources out there. Yes. Yeah. So you're so like me, you want sort of higher returns for your investor. So you need really off market sourcing or direct, direct mail campaigns, just straight to the owner. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Yeah. That's great. That's a great strategy. Um, I love that strategy. So uh, let me start. So once you get on deal, you t- take the LOI, <clears throat> once you get accepted, you put a PSA. And in your PSA, you specifically the terms uh, about how many days you want due diligence and closing. And then during that period, you do due diligence, which is normally 30 days. Um, you find nothing really major, then you proceed. But there was one case where one of my partner found an environmental issue where there's one chemical in phase two that was under, underneath the ground. And that was a very iffy. I said, well, do you want to still proceed? Because it's stuck underground. And you, as long as you don't disturb it, then it's okay. So I'm not sure, in Jacob, in, in, in your view, what would you do in that situation? Environmental contamination is a, a challenging thing to deal with. It may not be a problem, but if you're financing the property, the lender is probably going to want a solution to that. And even if the lender doesn't want a solution with it, you're buying lender, you're in buyer when you eventually sell the property is probably going to bring that up later. So if we uncover stuff like that, we have to we have to have a good plan in place to make sure it's mitigated and corrected. Okay. Generally, uh, environmental mitigation and all the deals we've done has not been uh, a major issue. It's expensive, but you know, unless you're buying a kind of a super fun site, it's not typically millions of dollars. It's typically a rational scope of work and a rational price to get it corrected. Um, but that's definitely something that we study when we when we pull our uh, our third party reports, phase one, phase two, obviously a survey, property condition report. Um, but environmental can get you in trouble if you're not accounting for it, for sure. Yes, yes, it could be it could be costly if you don't know how to or get a quote how much it will cost to contaminate or mitigate that issue. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes you can't it can't be mitigated, only monitored. So there's not. In some cases, there's not enough you can do to make it go away. You just have to put monitoring wells in, inject chemicals into the soil to break up the contamination. And you might not have a, a no further action letter for, for many years. So it's definitely a risk that you have to watch out for as you're buying commercial properties or any property for that matter. In your in your tenure experience holding self-storage, was there, I guess, normally this is very recession-proof. It does very well during downturn. Have you seen that hold true in your portfolios? Yeah, self-storage has been a really defensible asset class uh, when, when things kind of come off the, the, the rails. Um, I wasn't in self-storage during the financial crisis back in 2008, 2009 yet, but um, it was one of the better performing asset classes when everything else was falling apart. And uh, through the pandemic, it performed really well. People were displaced. Uh, they needed to clear out their third bedrooms for their home office. So consumer demand really increased in 2020. And we're, we're seeing that sustained consumer demand 
and uh, kind of continue uh, through the end of 2021 and probably into 2022 in the foreseeable future. Yeah. So we think it's a good asset class and it's got a good blend of downside protection, but with really reasonable, quantifiable upside as well. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you about this. Um, so some, some maybe always wondering, okay, they see the benefit of self-storage because you have this kind of recession resistant, like it goes it going more increased during the downturn, everyone displaced, so that's great. I think the four Ds, divorce, downsizing, was displacement, and some, oh, and I forgot what the fourth D was, but there's one more D. Death. No, no one? Death, yeah, death. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's why it's a great asset class. So I guess the question is, if when you're, when you're operating this, when do you normally increase the rents? Do you increase it year one, or do you hold, or so you stagnate a certain phase? Like, okay, maybe 40 people out of 100 get ready. How would you, how would you do that in your vision? Well, it, it's very granular and it's kind of deal by deal. So the, the two deal types we're, we're buying lately, um, one deal type might have lower occupancy, say it's 55% at acquisition. Mm-hmm. The year one business plan on a property like that is purely occupancy growth and not so much revenue management. And let's say we buy a deal at 97% occupancy. You might think it's pretty full. Where's the, where's the value creation? Well, in self-storage, if you're too full, it means your rates are too low. So in the first uh, in the first year of operations, we'll we'll study which unit types are below market, how long those customers have been there, and then incrementally over time on a unit by unit basis, start raising customer rates to to market rates. And uh, on deals like that, you're not actually leasing up any additional units. In fact, your occupancy might drop, uh, but your revenue is actually increasing because of those rate increases. So oh, kind of depends on the deal type. Um, not good occupancy is mainly occupancy growth. And if it's full, when we buy it, it's mainly revenue management. Exactly. So this is an experienced operator. So, you know, I can, I can understand because when you're full, I mean, it's, it's under probably too, too cheap for the, the rent. So you can yep. increase the rent. And then if you have low, I guess what happened was either he mismanaged it, he didn't know how to operate it, or, or something happened otherwise is under, under occupancy. But in this your case, let's say it's half occupied. What do you think was the situation? How did he get into that situation? Well, one deal we bought specifically in Florida had about 55% occupancy and acquisition. And I think the main reason for that was they, they just didn't have good customer service. The leasing office was uh, in, in a state of major disrepair and um, they weren't nice to their customers. The facility was kind of busted and tired and uh, the occupancy showed. So we rebranded the facility. We put up new signage. We painted the doors. We seal coated the asphalt renovated the leasing office, brought in some professional employees to manage it, uh, you know, with branded polos, um, upgraded the software system, new gate system, new, new security cameras, and uh, customers sense that. Uh, they, want a, they want a clean, safe, secure leasing experience, but they also, they also want it to be seamless. And um, if you can provide those, those things, then you're going to grow occupancy. Yes, that's exactly, exactly. That's right. What are you saying exactly? Right. So what they're saying is you have to the, okay, the reason why this this was half full because they had disgruntled employees didn't like the the way the the, the the management you know the customer service was horrible um, maybe the way it looked it looked um, kind of degraded so they said I'm gonna go somewhere else because I'm not paying my money to you when I can go maybe next door there's a lot nicer facility maybe pay a little more money but then you get a better you know service yeah and what, yeah and your vision is I'm gonna go in there as an as a value add operator to value add make it nicer make it make a, a new re- rebrand it you know re, you know bring in more new customers and, and and fill up the occupancy rate and i guess you have a new probably new standard rate that you might be standard market rate is that, is that how you do that 
Yeah, we, we generally, if it's lower occupancy, we won't be too aggressive on rate increases in the first year. We'll typically solve to a 85% physical occupancy threshold before we start pushing through rate increases. Um, so yeah, it just kind of depends on the deal. But uh, if, it's, if it's bad occupancy, it's mainly targeted marketing, rebranding, and just getting those, those vacant units filled up over time. Yes, yes, great. great. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess you automate your facility, is that correct? Automation? We, we do to a degree. Um, some of our deals are, are not staffed with a full-time employee. Uh, those are our smaller facilities. So you can lease your unit online, make your payment online, get your gate code online or your smartphone. Uh, other deals are staffed, the larger ones with full-time on-site personnel. Um, but if a customer doesn't want to talk to a person during their leasing experience, they don't have to. So they can do it contactless. They can show up without going to the leasing office. They'll get a unit. So it varies from deal to deal, but we've definitely leveraged the uh, technology platforms that are out there to, um, to, to minimize the need for staffing, not eliminate, but certainly minimize. Yes, that's exactly because you give them a choice to either be just go by yourself because some people don't want to talk to no one and just go to themselves, self storage, or they want to talk to someone because they like that. In the, if there's a big facility, you have someone to help, you know, sell locks or something and, and, and buy some kind of, you know, maybe a U haul customers do rent a U haul. Yep. Yeah. Because in U-Haul, you cannot fully automate U-Hauls, I understand. No, U-Haul uh, adds to your top line revenue, but it's it's very labor intensive to run a U-Haul site. We've got U-Hauls in a number of our sites around the country and uh, it makes money, but you have to have a person there to turn over trucks and do rental agreements and mm -hmm. all the above. Would you say it's worth it on a larger site? Is it worth having a U-Haul? I think it is. Uh, we have a deal in Ohio that's got about 45 grand a year in top line revenue from U-Haul. If you're mainly focused on revenue, I think it makes sense. But from a valuation perspective, if someone's going to pay you a 6% cap rate when you sell the facility, they may not pay you a 6% cap rate on the U-Haul component of the revenue stream. So you're not going to get the same dollar for dollar value creation that you might from the revenue on the storage units, for example, or parking. Um, but from a, from a cash flow perspective, I think it makes sense. It just kind of depends on what your strategy is. Okay. Okay. Interesting. That's, that's very good to know because I didn't know if U-Haul, you know, operate small, I have a small uh, hundred units self storage. I haven't run like the 800 big, large, larger ones. So I wasn't sure how that worked in the larger facilities. Okay. Cause we have a part-time facility manager that just manages for us. Okay. 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 And what, what else in your strategy would you want to share to say that, you know, that is unique or that's very, that you make additional revenue that maybe it's something is, is outside the box that we don't think of. Yeah. Well, one thing I didn't mention earlier in terms of our, our value creation strategy on a deal that's uh, more heavily occupied is layering in ancillary revenue streams like tenant insurance, blade fees, administrative fees. Um, tenant insurance is interesting because uh, people listening to this may not know this, but in self-storage, the typical lease stipulates the owner is not responsible for the customer's contents. So we'll require our customers to either present proof of coverage from their homeowner's policy or buy insurance from us. And our insurance uh, covers five to $10,000 worth of their contents. And um, we pay about $2 a month to our insurance carrier and we charge our customers between $10 or $12 a month. So that net arbitrage between the two numbers may not seem like a lot, but if you amortize that across thousands of units and you put a cap rate on that, there's a lot of value creation there. Uh, another another ancillary revenue stream is late fees. Most of the kind of mom and pop operators have late fees, but they don't really enforce them or collect them. Um, and the last one is a one-time administrative fee when a customer moves in. So if they lease a unit, they pay a twenty-five dollar fee for kind of a move-in fee, uh, plus their rent, plus their insurance. 
And those three ancillary revenue streams add up to be about seven to eight percent of our top line revenue, which is pretty meaningful. Okay. So it's more of a kind of block and tackle exercise on a full facility. You're bringing below market customers up to market rates, and you're also layering in those ancillary revenue streams, which uh, all over time add up to be pretty meaningful. Oh, that's that's excellent, excellent. I like that. I like to hear the additional valuation creation. Great. Um, what are, what are your thoughts on um, cell towers? Have you, do you have one on your site? We do. We have a handful of facilities that do, and uh, one of our investors is actually a, a cell tower developer, and we're considering adding cell towers to a few of our sites that don't already have them. Uh, cell towers are interesting because they uh, there there's a lot of demand for them. They have long term leases, and they generally trade for very low cap rates because of the safety of the income stream. The challenge with the cell tower is it runs with the land. So a lot of these leases might be 30 years. So if you want to develop your property down the road on the area where the cell tower is, um, that's pretty tough to do. You probably can't do it. So you kind of limit what you can build on the site because that uh, long-term lease is in place. Uh, but from a cash flow perspective and a value creation perspective, they make a lot of sense. I think you need like, I think one of them was like a thousand by a thousand or some kind of square footage. So you have cell time, they, they lease you that space. So as long as you yeah, have additional- It depends on the size of the tower. And sometimes they can put a tower on the building. Um, on the building too, okay. Yeah, it just kind of varies from carrier to carrier. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I guess if you, if you have the additional space and you don't, you don't plan to develop in, in that area, then maybe it's okay to have a cell tower to get the additional income. Yep. You got to find the money to build it. And then you have to find the carriers to lease it, which uh, can be kind of challenging, but uh, there's a lot of them out there. And uh, with the wireless industry, the way it is, I'm sure there's a lot of demand for new towers. Mm-hmm. And is it very costly to, to, to build a cell tower? Yeah, it varies uh, from site to site, but it could be a few hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Not cheap. Okay. Oh, yeah. That, that is expensive. Okay. That's very good insight. That's, I didn't know that about the cell tower. You can actually build on your site and you got built yourself. Okay. I didn't know. Yep. I, I thought they come to you and they choose your locations. I want to rent from you. You know what I'm saying? They do sometimes. Yeah. There's uh, there's a lot of companies out there who have relationships with carriers mm-hmm. and they analyze the parts of the market the carriers want to be. And they reach out to property owners and say, tell you what, I'll put in the money to build a cell tower on your site and I'll, I'll share the revenue with you and the upside with you. And an owner without a lot of money might say, okay, that sounds good. I don't have the capital to do it myself. If you have a, a carrier who wants to lease it and you'll put up the money, let's do it. And we'll cut a deal on the, on the splits, on the revenue and the upside. So that's, that's often how it's done. Yeah. Cause I had one deal where I had it under contract and he had already had a, a contract for a cell tower. And that was the first deal I did myself storage. And I didn't know how to handle it. You know, I didn't know how to handle it. Do we just take it or negotiate the lease? We weren't sure how to handle that one. That was very interesting. Yeah. They're, they're tricky. You got to, Probably get some attorneys involved to make sure you're not uh, doing a bad deal. Yeah, yeah. That, was very, that was very interesting. Um, okay, great. I think that's, that's really, um, you add a lot of value in terms of the additional income streams um, from cell tower to uh, late fees to tenant insurance where you can sell tenant insurance to cover the goods. How about vending machines? You put any vending machines into your, your facilities? No, we, we haven't gone down that road yet. Um, that, that's a thought. I mean, you want to you want to extract every ounce of revenue you can out of a, a real estate parcel you own. But vending machines, we just haven't uh, gotten around to it yet. It probably makes sense, but the gross dollars they produce are pretty nominal. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if you're if you're spending a few grand on a vending machine and making a hundred bucks a month, that's a good ROI. But you're still only making hundred dollars a month, right? 
Yeah, yeah. And you don't know who's how much usage is going to be. Is going to be any demand for it? That's the yeah. The the ROI on your investment might be good, but the ROI on your time might not be that efficient. It's similar to I have an apartment, and we we one thing one time I put in a vendor, but no one's using the Coke machine. So there's really there's not much income generated from that Coke machine. Yep. Okay. Okay. Great. I think I think that's it. But thank you. So let me ask you some questions, um, Jacob. What do you? What is one of your? Um, I guess your daily habits that that you think to your to your um, positive success. Well, I don't have a lot of free time on my hands. I've got two boys that are three and two, and uh, a full time job. But uh, as much as I can, I try to work out. I never regret workouts. Um, it's always a, a good thing to allocate time for those. Uh, I read everything that I possibly can. I'm mostly a historic nonfiction fan, but I read business books here and there too. Um, and then uh, calendar blocking too is, is critical. Just managing your calendar efficiently and giving yourself enough time to work on the important things and, um, and not just get bogged down in the urgent things. Mm -hmm. So what's the best advice you give to our audience? Best advice I can come up with is if you're thinking about doing a deal, and you keep reading about real estate investing and looking at properties, the best way to learn is to pull the trigger. Uh, go out and buy something and uh, hopefully you make money on it. But if you don't, you'll learn a lot and you can apply those lessons to your next uh, acquisition. So it's really easy to sit back and not take action. And I think the best thing that someone can do is go out and take a risk. Yeah, I do believe that because um, you can't read all these books and you don't do anything. You sit back out to your, your day job and nothing happens. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's one, that's a great advice. And one, what's one way you give back to the community? Um, to, oh, you do volunteer. What, what do you do to give back to the community? Yeah, I did, uh, I did big brothers, big sisters for about nine years and my, my little just got, uh, got big and we kind of moved on. Okay. Um, I want to get back into that with another little at some point, but I've, I've got my own two littles right now. So finding time for that is tricky. Um, we're part of a, a nonprofit here or support a nonprofit here in Denver called Historic Denver, which kind of advocates for historic preservation around town. Um, so we do what we can, obviously charitable donations. Um, but uh, my philanthropy has uh, diminished a little bit in the last couple of years, just with two small kids at home. Uh, but as they get older, I'll find some more time to kind of get back into it more. I know how it feels when you're a young one, uh, consume a lot of time and a lot of effort. Um, yeah, so. they do. They're, they're a lot of fun and a lot of work at the same time. Yes, yes, in, in those years. So, well, wonderful, Jacob. Thank you for coming to the show. I really appreciate it. Jonathan, great to meet you. We really appreciate you hosting us today. So, thank you again. Okay. Thank you. And how would someone reach out to you, Jacob? You want to have an email or something? Or what's yeah, I always love to talk about real estate. Uh, you can email me at jacob at vanwestpartners.com or go to our website, vanwestpartners.com. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information, you can find us online at www.graystonecapgroup.com. Check back weekly for new episodes. See you again next time.